Thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Man, I'm excited. I just, surely by now you've recognized that this series that we're in has gotten me kind of jacked up a little bit, okay? So last week, we had an incredible, incredible time last week. We talked a lot about the Bible according to Jesus and how... um, the God's covenant in the Old Testament, and when we talked about that word testament, how it could be translated, it is translated into covenant. and means covenant. So our Bible could be broken up into Old Covenant and New Covenant. And we talked about how God's covenant with ancient Israel was two things. One, it was with ancient Israel. And number two, it was temporary. It had an expiration date. And so Through this series, we're in week four now of our series, Irresistible. Through this series, we've talked about God's global agenda for Israel, for the nation of Israel. We've talked about God's global Israel for the nation of Israel. We've talked about God's global agenda for you. And so we're going to continue this morning. Uh, We've really hit over this series God, the three big covenants that hold the storyline of our Bible together. And those covenants are uh, God's covenant with Moses, God's covenant with Abraham, and of course, God's new covenant with anybody and everybody who chooses to participate in it, which includes you, okay? So you got God's covenant with Moses, God's covenant with Abraham, and now God's covenant with you. This is God's covenant with Abraham, and now God's covenant with you. Now, each of these covenants had practical applications and implications. So in today's message, we're going to really explore the applications and the implications uh, that for those participants who choose to be a part of the new covenant that Jesus established for us. Now remember, in, in talking about this series, we've said that we are, we are reclaiming the new that Jesus unleashed and tried to establish for the entire world, okay? So Jesus brought something new. The church somehow mixed and matched and kind of messed it up a little bit and brought some of the old back in and it became kind of distorted and disfigured. And what we're trying to do now and through this series is really unleash and reclaim the new that Jesus established. So today we're gonna talk about what it means for you and for me who are a part of this new covenant. What are the implications and applications that are a part of this new covenant that Jesus established with us? So today's message as a part of Irresistible is entitled The Irresistible Ethic. Okay, we're trying to get back to a point. At one time in in history, Jesus was really irresistible. At one time in our history, the church was really irresistible. How do we get back to that irresistible ethic? Now, as you know, I'm a pastor. I've been a, 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 some sort of a pastor, some form of a pastor since 1990, 1997. <laughs> it was back in 1997 that I, I went into full-time ministry, and I worked with teenagers for 15 plus years, uh, worked with Bible students and and all that kind of stuff, worked in ministry. And throughout my uh, career or whatever you want to call it in ministry, I get asked crazy questions. I get asked lots and lots of questions. I've been asked some crazy questions, but there's one question that I get asked often. Most pastors get this question often, and it's this. Pastor Jared is Blank a sin. 
Have you ever heard that? I mean, I get asked that. I get asked that or some form of that question all the time. Is blank a sin? And in fact, I've asked that question. And if you're honest, you have also probably asked that question as well. And here's why. For most of my life, I have been taught and I grew up knowing that sin offends God. And since sin offends God, I should avoid sinning so that I don't offend God, which is true, but it always left me wondering where the enjoyment ended and the sin began, right? You're all nodding your heads, but nobody wants to say amen because you don't want you're all nodding your heads, but nobody wants to say amen because you don't want to act like you thought that at one point. So I'll just take it on me. That's cool. But it's human nature to want to know exactly where the okay and the not so okay lines are so that we can snuggle up as close to the not so okay as possible without actually not being not okay. Okay? Everybody got that? So, I mean, I didn't want to be guilty of sin, but man, I sure didn't want to miss out on anything that was okay. Does that make sense? I didn't want to miss out on anything that wasn't off limits. So thus the question, what does the Bible say about this? Or is it okay to do that? Can I say this? As a Christian, can I get away with that? Is there anything wrong with that now in the version of christianity that i've been around really most of my life sin avoidance is pretty much our guiding light okay that's pretty much the rule that's how we live our lives sin avoidance avoid sin because as long as i'm not breaking any god rules then god is okay with me I'm okay with God, God hears my prayers, and he answers my prayers, and that's really kind of how I grew up. And the whole thing was very vertical, but I was far more concerned with how my behavior affected my standing with God than I was how my behavior affected anyone else around me. It really wasn't about anyone else around me, it was about me. I mean, after all, the Bible says that pleasing God is more important than pleasing men, right? Which led me to conclude that if I sinned against you, but I asked God to forgive me, then I was good with God while I avoided you, okay? I had this clear conscience. Everything was okay in my mind. Me and God were good. But if I saw you in the grocery store, I went the other way. This approach is flawed in a lot of ways. But we call this approach vertical morality. Vertical morality assumes that God's primary concern is how our behavior affects him, okay? That's the vertical part. In this way of thinking, God is personally offended by certain behaviors. Why? Because they're actually contrary to his nature. They're contrary to his sensibility. They're contrary to his holiness. And while this is all certainly true, it creates a very eye-to-the-sky kind of mentality, okay? And it's left me always wondering how my behavior set with a holy God. And since I couldn't actually see God, and I couldn't actually read God's body language, or I couldn't see God's facial expressions, it leaves you wondering what the answers are to some of those questions that we just talked about a while ago. Is God okay with this? Can I do this? Can I get away with this? And of course, there's a little bit of hypocrisy woven in all of this, and I get that. But my primary concern wasn't how my sin affected God even, really. It was more, is my sin going to come back and haunt me one day? Is it going to come back to me? Not to mention wondering how close I could get to God without sinning is pretty equal to asking how far away can I get from God without actually losing contact with God altogether. 
a flawed approach, but very, very, very common, okay? We've seen that. Now, perhaps the second and less obvious expression to vertical morality is this. Through the years, I've run into a lot of people who aren't wondering how low they can go to get away. They're actually wondering how high they can get, and not that kind of high. People are asking, uh, uh, they're seeking a deeper, a deeper expression of their relationship with God. They're asking a separate set of questions, more virtuous questions, more righteous questions. They're asking things like, how can I get closer to God? How can I know God more intimately? How can I receive everything and all that God has for me? Now, as strange as it may sound, these questions actually create a very vertical orientation as well. While seeking greater intimacy with God is a very noble pursuit, we would be less than honest if we didn't admit that the intimacy that we saw is really more for the benefit of the seeker than it is for God. So think about it. People who are seeking a deeper experience are really seeking something a lot of times more for themselves than anything else, which is fine, but those seeking a deeper experience with God can be sometimes, and I'm being real careful because some of you are going, whoa, 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 sometimes can be just as self-absorbed as those trying to figure out how far away they can actually go without actually getting too far away. Maybe it will make you feel a little bit better if you knew that I have played on both sides of this fence, okay? I have enjoyed both playgrounds throughout my lifetime, and I've danced on both dance floors. One of them left me looking for loopholes, workarounds, and ways to skirt the teachings of the New Testament and the teaching of, of Jesus in order to have my way while not getting too far away. The other side of the fence sent me in another not-so-healthy direction. I remember this very specifically. In my 20s, I said goodbye to the how low can, can I go state. You know, is this sin? Is that sin? Is this sin? Is that sin? I kind of said goodbye to that stage, and I started asking those more virtuous questions, those more righteous questions, and I really started seeking God in a different way. I wanted to experience everything God had for me. I started to develop a really consistent and deep prayer life, and it was powerful, and it was great. And I would spend a lot of times uh, at least an hour a day or more praying. And then as I started into our Bible school, we did that with our students. Often we'd pray an hour or more. One of the churches that I was youth pastor at in Wichita Falls, they had a bell tower, and man, I literally spent 100 plus hours climbing up the stairs, up the stairs to get to the baptistry, which was about 15 feet above the, the auditorium. Then I would climb a ladder to get up into the catwalk area. And then, then I would climb a ladder to get up into the catwalk area. And then I would climb another ladder that would go straight up and I would open a hatch into the bell tower that had no bell in it. It was just called a bell tower. I don't know why, but it was just a bell tower, no bell. Bellus Tower. And... I would get up there, and you could climb up and sit on the ledge. And I'm scared of heights, but it was a wide ledge, and I sat on the inside, the very inside of the edge, with one foot hanging on the inside of the edge and one hand hanging on the inside of the ledge. And you could look across the entire city. It was really cool. And I spent so, so, so many days in that prayer tower, in that bell tower, praying and seeking God. I spent so much time reading and praying because I endeavored to live a holy life, and I went as deep with my relationship with God as I thought I could go, or at least I went a version of deep. But that at the end of it all, looking back, it was still really a lot about me. In fact, one thing I realized is the more holy that I got, the more intolerant and judgmental I became. See, whether one goes low and shallow or one goes deep and high, 
They're both very vertical approaches, eye to the sky. And to be honest, both approaches are rooted in old covenant thinking. Both approaches are fueled by traditions of mixing and matching old and new texts, mixing and matching old covenant and new covenant assumptions, mixing and matching old covenant and new covenant values and ideas. Because a steady diet of personalizing and individualizing concepts from the Old Testament contributes to the creation of a vertically oriented faith. Vertically oriented faith. Eye to the sky. God's covenant with Israel, with ancient Israel, was extraordinarily vertical. On purpose. Okay? He's establishing a new nation. He's starting from scratch and he's creating a nation from scratch. And it was very, very important that he had their undivided attention. And in fact, the preamble to the Sinai covenant underscores this. It was a keep your eyes on me, keep your eyes on my commandments or else. It doesn't really get any more vertical than that. The commandments that God had established with Israel were all designed to keep the nation of Israel separate from all the other nations. It was designed to keep them from, they weren't permitted to marry, to mix, or to mingle with anyone outside of their own people. They were told to secure their borders and to expel any misbehaving foreigners. After Moses passed the leadership torch to Joshua, God reiterated the same idea to the, of the nation to the new commander, Joshua, when he said this in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. He says this, he says, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that is written in it. Then you will be prosperous and in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. As we see throughout the Old Testament, divine blessing was always contingent upon the nation fixing their eyes on God and fixing their eyes on God's law at all times. This is the way it was. Obedience to the law would result in economic and military blessing. The tone and the texture of everything associated with the old covenant was this way. It was very vertical on purpose. Vertical morality will leave you wondering and guessing answers to questions that the Bible doesn't directly answer. It leaves people with sincere hearts longing for more and the people with not so sincere hearts looking to get by with less. So I can imagine that this morning some of you are going, okay, Pastor Jared, assuming that this vertical morality is a thing and assuming that this vertical morality is a thing to be avoided, what's the alternative? Horizontal morality? Yes, that is the alternative. <laughs> and, and where did you get this absurd, crazy idea? From Jesus. As we discovered earlier, Jesus said things in his famous mountain message that served as a heads up. He was giving a warning that something new is on the horizon. In fact, during the same upending sermon, he made the following statement. Listen, this is what he said in Matthew chapter number five. Therefore, if you're offering a gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, not you remember that you have something. If you remember they have something against you, he says, leave your gift there in front of the altar first and go be reconciled with them. Then come back and offer your gift. And the crowd goes wild. <sighs> no, not really. They were shaking their heads. They were going, this is ridiculous. 
This guy has lost his mind. They're, they're just thinking this guy's crazy. First of all, the Jewish people, they went and they visited the temple once or twice a year, okay? So when they get to the temple, the sun is hot, the lines are long, the kids are misbehaving, the animals are just going crazy, not to mention that the smell around the temple at this time had to be awful. Think about it. Just think about all the people that were there to make this sacrifice. And then Jesus comes out. And now think Jesus. In fact, Jesus and his followers, they're from Galilee, which is a three-day journey to that temple. Okay? And then Jesus is going to come out and say, if you're in line at the temple and you're about to make your sacrifice and then you think about somebody back home that's got an issue with you, there ain't no way in Hades I'm getting out of line and traveling three days back there to go find some unruly camper who's got an issue with me and I don't even know why they have a problem with me and I'm going to get out of line and go back and deal with that. You're crazy. You have got to be crazy. Jesus didn't actually mean to imply that reconciling with to imply that reconciling with someone's brother or sister should actually come before reconciling with God, right? I mean, making things right with someone who may have something against us could not possibly be more important than temple worship. Did he really believe that horizontal morality should take precedence over vertical morality? Surely not, but he did. And as it turns out, that's exactly what he meant. This was part of the new that Jesus was starting to unleash. This was crazy talk. Some of you this morning, you've been involved in such mixing and matching. It's crazy talk to you. Even as I talk about it, you're like, oh, this is crazy talk. Yeah, think about it to them. They weren't even mixing and matching the new. They were just stuck in the old, and it was super crazy talk. But listen to this. 17 chapters later, we find the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. They're taking bets on which group could actually humiliate Jesus the most in public. So the Pharisees are like, we got this, we got this. So they go first. They send a group of interns to Jesus to ask him an IRS question. Jesus does a coin trick, stuns them all, sends them back to where they came from in complete silence. He makes them look dumb. So the Sadducees are like, okay, we got this. We got this. We're next. So they're up. And they basically ask Jesus a riddle. So, Jesus, here's the riddle. So, a woman, she, she gets married. She marries a guy. She marries his brother. She ends up marrying all seven of his brothers. There's seven of them. And it, like every good riddle ends with a question. She says, so, she marries all seven brothers. Eventually, they all die. She goes to heaven. Which one is she married to in heaven? Oh, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> And, you know, and I'm sure the person that's the spokesperson for Sadducees turns around and is like, ah, we got it, we got it. Huh? Huh? Which is crazy because the Sadducees didn't believe in heaven. Okay? The Sadducees didn't believe in heaven. This question, this riddle that they were bringing was to underscore the absurdity of the afterlife. That's what they were trying to do because they didn't believe in the afterlife. So Jesus smiles at them. He tells them, you need to go home and read your own Bible because you don't know the first thing about your own scriptures. And then he, to prove it, he leveraged some verb tense from a passage in Genesis that left everybody speechless, and they too disappeared back into the crowd. By this time, the Pharisees had regrouped and they were ready. Okay? He got the Pharisees had regrouped and they were ready. Okay? He got us the first time. The problem was we sent a bunch of interns. No offense to any interns here this morning. But the problem is we sent a bunch of interns to ask him an IRS question, okay? I get it. I get it. So now we're going to send a lawyer. 
We're going to send an expert. This time we've got him. And so they get ready and they, they send a lawyer. And Matthew is there. Matthew's taking notes. And in Matthew chapter 22, this is what Matthew said happened. Hearing that Jesus silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert of the law, tested Jesus with this question. Now, it's important to note that the lawyer wasn't there to learn anything at all. The lawyer was there to build his own resume, okay? Now, the theology question didn't work against Jesus. It didn't trip him up. So now maybe a, uh, a legal question would actually do it. And he says this, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And I, I, now, when I read into things, I'm a very visual person, so everything I read, I picture in my mind, okay? So I picture the lawyer there with a very smug look on his face, very arrogant. I got this. So which is the greatest commandment, teacher? Now, this is not an unusual question, but every good Jew in the audience, they understood the textbook textbook answer to this question and so Jesus gives them the textbook answer he says love the Lord God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind this is the first and it is the greatest commandment and yes it is Rabbis had been teaching this forever. Every good Jew in the audience, they understood the answer to this question, and they agreed with it. Absolutely. You're right. And they're like, good answer, good answer. You know the scripture as we know the scripture. Shocking. But maybe the follow-up question that the lawyer was getting to, ready to ask was going to be the question that really stumped him. Maybe this follow-up question was going to be, so what exactly does it look like to love the Lord God with all of one's heart, with all of one's mind, with all of one's soul. What does that look like? What exactly should I be doing? So he's getting ready maybe to ask that because the Jews, to the Jews, everything was very vertical. Okay, everything was vertical. It was a very vertical answer that he was expecting to get back from Jesus because the ancient, to the ancient Jews, they demonstrated their love for God by keeping his commandments. That was it. You keep his commandments, you're good. You keep God's rules and God is happy. God is pleased. Follow the law and everything's great. So perhaps, now we don't know this, but maybe the lawyer's intent was to demonstrate to the crowd that Jesus was actually guilty of breaking the first, the greatest law in all the world that they all agreed on was the greatest law because he often disregarded some of the lesser commands. So maybe that's what, but we don't know exactly what his follow-up question was going to be because as soon as Jesus gave the first answer, he said immediately without a pause, and the second one is like it. And the lawyer's got to be thinking, the second one, I didn't ask a second, I asked you one question. And Jesus doesn't even stop. He says the second one is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The second the second as in almost as great as the first. The second as in almost as great as the first. The second as in almost as great as the greatest. What? What? What, what did Jesus mean by it's like it? How much like it is it like? Hmm. Now, before we go there, historically, it's important for us to go here first. This is the first time, and this is so, so cool. This is the first time in recorded history that these two Old Testament, Old Covenant statements were actually combined like this. The first one shows up in, in Deuteronomy. The second one makes its debut in Leviticus. But this unique combination was original with Jesus for the first time in history right here. This was new. This was yet another in a series of statements that Jesus was pointing to a change that is coming. Jesus' point was that there were actually two greatest commandments, not just one. 
two. The second commandment was not second in importance. It was second in sequence. Now, the command that comes second in sequence was a command that was equally as great, as equally as important as the first one. It was like it in magnitude. It was like it in significance. Jesus would go on to say in the same conversation that these two commandments from the old covenant summed up the entire Jewish scripture. Not, not just that, the entire Old Testament, the entire Jewish law was summed up in these two covenants. His words were, all the law and the prophets hinge on these two commandments. Hmm, that's interesting. Because if you would have asked first century Jews what it looked like to love God, they would have said, you obey his commands. Obey his commandments. Jesus was suggesting maybe a new answer. Because they would have said, obey his commands. That's easy. It's, that's textbook. Jesus is suggesting something brand new. His answer would be this. If you want to love God, love your neighbor. And his point was really unmistakable. Love for God was best demonstrated and authenticated by one's love for their neighbor. Wow. This was a clue that something new was certainly on the horizon. Okay? This was foreshadowing that, that it was certainly vertical, but it wasn't vertical anymore, but now he's moving into this horizontal phase. According to Jesus, anyone who mistreated their neighbor didn't love God. A vertical love for God was going to be manifested through our horizontal love for our neighbors. I'm going to let you think about that for a minute. Our vertical love for God, because ultimately, right, this is what it's about, our vertical love for God would manifest itself, it would become tangible and evident in our horizontal love for our neighbors. It was as if Jesus was saying this, don't claim adherence to commandment number one if you are guilty of violating commandment number two. Mmm, deep. That's a big thought right there. That's really big thought for us today, 2020, 19, and 2019, which brings us to this. See, Jesus was always calling out, see, Jesus was always calling out Jewish leaders for mistreatment of fellow Jews, their neighbors. And if Jesus was correct, and, and I hope you agree with me that Jesus was always correct. Then what Jesus is saying was loving God is the most important. And, and if you violate loving your neighbor, then you're not actually loving God. This is what he's saying. This is the first. You're breaking the first and the greatest commandment if you're not fulfilling the second. So now about neighbor. Love your neighbor. Now, when, when I say that term, a lot of you probably, certain things come to mind. If you've been in a part of this church for more than a year, you probably remember us talking a lot about this. But love your neighbor. We, when, we, when we think about neighbor, we think of one thing. But to understand the, the context of this verse, you have to understand what the Jews thought when they saw or read or heard this term neighbor. For a Jew... A neighbor was a Jew's people, other Jews. For a Jew to love another Jew as he or she loved him or herself made perfect sense. Why? Because they were all Jews. It was easy to love another Jew. Loving their neighbor was code for loving other Jews. But Jesus has this new movement, this shifting that's coming in, and it meant more than loving other Jews. His new movement actually, crazy enough, oddly enough, welcomed foreigners 
who were living among them, and also it welcomed in foreigners who were still living in foreign lands. So as he had done on previous occasions, Jesus altered the rules and he redefined the terms because the era of defining neighbor ethnically was coming to an end. Up to this point, that's all, what it, all it was about. So to prepare his followers on what was coming, Jesus once again veers outside of the Levitical law and he redefined neighbor and here's how it goes down. This is, this is not too long after episode one of Stump the Rabbi. Jesus is approached by another lawyer with another trick, trick question and this guy comes up to him and he says this, and this is found in Luke chapter 10. Teacher, hmm, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we've talked about this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this, this is actually mistranslated the way we would believe it because eternal life, the way it's translated, is aeonios zoe, okay, which means age ending, age long human lifetime. Human lifetime is one of the main definitions for this. So what he's asking here is what must I do to live a fulfilled life, an abundant life, fulfilled life? And of course, this is a great question, but Jesus knew that there was actually a question behind the question, so Jesus responded with a question. Jesus says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Translated, you're the lawyer, you tell me. This is where things get really, really interesting. The lawyer recites the answer that they both had been taught their whole life. He had been paying attention that afternoon, so he heard Jesus' formula for, for the greatest commandment. So he had been listening to what Jesus says. So in an attempt to maybe throw Jesus off, he looks at Jesus and he says, ha, this is easy. He answered, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He may have given him a little wink, you know, and a little thumbs up, whatever. Gotcha there. Jesus replies, gotcha there. Jesus replies, he says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That word there is translated, you will live a full life. But the lawyer, he shows his cards in this. And Luke tells us that he was really there to just justify himself. And, and absolutely, he was trying to trip Jesus up. So he asks another question. This time, the question that he asks, little did he know he would regret asking this question for the rest of his life. As soon as this question came out of his mouth, it was over. This was the question behind the question. And he asked this. He says, Jesus, so who then is my neighbor? Dun, dun, dun. If this was a movie, it would zoom in on his face as he says it. The question behind this question, the unabridged version of this question is this. Jesus, what's the minimum amount of neighbor love that I'm required to perform to ensure that I myself live a full life. Based on the Levitical passages cited above, he assumed, as everyone in the crowd assumed, that to love one's neighbor was restricted to the descendants of Abraham. Jews, other Jews. But he's wanting to know this. Which descendants? All of them? I mean, which Jews? And, and not just which Jews, but how much love is enough love? I mean, where, where's the line there that I can stop that I've given enough love? How much is required? He was looking for a salvation formula, not for God's sake, and certainly not for his neighbor's sake, but think about it. He was looking for his sake. He wanted to know, what do I, yeah, I need you to explain the specifics. Who's my neighbor exactly? But of course, Jesus saw through this and he saw this as a perfect opportunity to deconstruct rather than reconstruct the audience's concept of neighbor. Now, Jesus is only months away from fulfilling and establishing his new covenant between God and all the nations. 
Up to this point, Israel had only seen covenants made between them and God. And now, now God has about established a covenant between him and all the nations. And Jesus is at this point where he's getting ready to unleash this. And he understands that this good news, which will become the gospel that is going to be preached, this good, exciting thing that I'm getting ready to unleash is going to go well beyond the borders of Judea and Galilee. And so for that to happen, listen, his followers were going to have to abandon their ancient racist ways. Dun, dun, dun. This is getting deep. This is a big deal right here because Jesus knows where this story is going. Jesus knows for this story to continue to go where it's meant to go, which was to Humble, Texas and Atascacita, Texas and to the exchange. For this to get to you, his followers were going to have to drop some stuff. You need to say amen right there. <laughs> I give you a hint. I meant to urge you earlier. I just forgot. But that, thank God that they got to this point that they could drop some of them, their ancient racist ways, because this wasn't meant to be bottled up and kept just for them. This was actually meant for you, and you're not them. You don't fit into them. You don't think like they thought. You don't have the same laws that they have. You don't have the same beliefs, the same systems, same theology. So he launched at that point into his most disorienting, the most paradigm shifting, the most mind bending parable of all. He responds and he says this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. At which point the lawyer has to be thinking, wait, 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 weren't we just talking about neighbors? How are we, how are we getting off on this? Now, you, a lot of you know this story, okay? So these two religious leaders... These religious people having going back and forth to the temple, traveling back and forth to the temple because this was the road that they traveled to the temple. These two Jewish religious people pass by a man who's been beaten and left half dead who actually is a Jew. And the Bible says they didn't lift one finger to help him. If Jesus' formula is correct, and again, I'll say, Jesus is always right, but we're just going to say, if Jesus is right here, then these two guys that just passed him up, they're doomed. These two guys that just passed him up, they're doomed. They did not love their Jewish neighbor with all of their heart, with all of their mind, with all of their soul, and with all of their strength as a reflection of their love for God. They just passed him up. So according to Jesus, these guys are in big trouble. Therefore, since they didn't love their neighbor, they didn't love God. They can go to the temple and they can worship all day long, every day if they want to. But according to Jesus, ain't nobody listening. So at this point of the story, Jesus' audience is listening. He's got their attention. They're leaning in. They're listening to where he's going. And so with a wrinkled brow, as if he's also probably concerned with where it's going, this is my imagination of what I'm picturing happening. He goes on and he looks at his audience. He looks back at this lawyer. He looks at the audience, looks at the lawyer. And he says this. And maybe he paused for a moment, but he says, but a Samaritan. Now, this is where I imagine the best pause was. Because I think, in my opinion, he had to pause here because of all the murmuring, all the whispering and talking that started to say, okay? Because to think, he pauses after the statement because it's safe to say that most Jews in his audience that were listening to this story probably assumed that the Samaritans were actually behind this imaginary robbery in the first place, right? That's who I would blame. It made perfect sense. A Jew is beaten and left half dead. Obviously, it was the Samaritans. They're dogs. That's what they believe. They are no good half-breed dogs. Not my words, their words. But a Samaritan, as he traveled 
came there, came to where the man was, and he saw him, and he took pity on him. The people in his audience got to be thinking, surely, 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 Jesus is not about to make a Samaritan the hero in this story. But he did. But a Samaritan didn't just take pity on him. Jesus continues and he says, he went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. He put the man on his own donkey and he brought him to the inn and took care of him. Now we spent about six weeks, I think, I think it was last year in 2018, uh, maybe it was the end of 2017, preaching a series called Get Off Your Donkey. And the whole series, series was based around this parable right here, this story right here, because to first century Jews, this was ridiculous. Few, if any, in Jesus' audience would ever, ever take time for a Samaritan. They wouldn't do anything for a Samaritan. And no Samaritan that most of them had ever met would ever show such concern for a Jew. These people did not speak, much less touch each other. That's not how things were done back then. He goes on, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after them, he said. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you have. This was so over the top. Did Jesus really expect them to believe that a Samaritan would spend an entire night in a hotel caring for a bloody Jew? No Jew would, would do that. No Samaritan would do that. And now they're wondering, no, why would any Jew expend this much imagination on a story that's meant just to distract us from a question that Jesus obviously didn't have an answer to, something about a neighbor or something, I don't know. Jesus has got me so messed up and so crazy with a story, I can't even remember the original question. Now Jesus has taken them on this. Now, once people settled down, Jesus did something that his audience would not live long enough to appreciate. Jesus redefined neighbor for everyone forever. From this point on, no one would ever have the latitude to limit the definition of neighbor to people like themselves. Jesus expanded neighbor beyond the boundaries of Judea and Galilee, beyond single ethnicity. He broadened the definition beyond the first century setting, and he did it with one perfectly timed and designed question, a question that still forced even the most upright among us today to examine our own hearts, our own prejudices, our content for people who are not like us. For more than 2,000 years, believers and skeptics alike have felt the weight of this parable and its inescapably destructive question. In fact, every time I read this, every time I've told this story, every time I've preached a message and taught on this passage right here, it makes me re-examine myself and it challenges me. The Sermon on the Mount, the parable of the Good Samaritan were all signals. They were signs. They were more like breadcrumbs that something new is coming. Something new is on the horizon. Therefore, everyone who hears the parable of the Good Samaritan knows the answer to this closing question. The question that Jesus modeled. The question that Jesus asked. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. The answer was obvious. The implications of the answer, maybe not so much. Especially for us modern readers, there's a question behind Jesus' closing question, and the real question was this. Think about it. Which of these three men... Loved the Lord God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. That's the question behind the question that he's asking. 
perhaps maybe the longest pause of the entire afternoon. The lawyer finally is getting ready to answer, but he pauses for a moment because you can imagine he knows what's about to happen. He knows that when he opens his mouth, he's now going to be held accountable for what comes out of his mouth. He knows the answer to this question is obvious as everybody in the room, everybody in this area, all the people in the audience know the answer to this question. And he's got to say it out loud. You know that everybody's staring at him wondering what in the world he's about to say. A lot of them are going, thank God I didn't carry that question to Jesus. And he stands there and he looks at Jesus. Maybe he looks at his audience. I was reading this. I was reading over my message this morning and I was thinking about this and I was putting myself into this situation and it just kept breaking my heart. He looks at Jesus. He looks at his audience and he replies this. The one who had audience and he replies this. The one who had mercy on him. Apparently he couldn't even utter the ethnic identity of this hero in the story to put it in terms today because see we think what's the big deal about saying Samaritan you got to understand that this these were people that were nothing like them they had different set of beliefs different I mean to think about it it would be like sitting in this Christian church today and saying but a Muslim or but a racist, or but a Baptist, or a Methodist, or Church of Christ, or a Catholic, or a Christian, or a lesbian, but a lesbian, but a white man, but a black man, but a gay man, but a gay man came by and he took pity on him, and he took him and put him on his own donkey, And Jesus is asking this question to a bunch of religious people who've held lots of great protests for the LGBT. And Jesus says, which one was the neighbor to this man? It was the Samaritan. The one that none of them expected to be the hero in this story. He didn't believe like them. He, the Samaritan doesn't follow the law and the prophets. We follow the law and the prophets. We're descendants of Abraham. He's not. He's not one of us, Jesus. He don't even know who his parents, he's a mutt. He's a half-breed. This is what they call half-breed. Stun Silence. Maybe to add insult to injury, I don't know what the tone was there. But Jesus looks at his audience and he looks at this man and he says, go and do likewise. You're going to use this guy as a hero, a Samaritan, this guy, a, a Muslim. Somebody that's not like me, that doesn't look like me, that doesn't act like me, that doesn't talk like me, that doesn't believe like me. You're going to bring him into my town and he's going to doctor one of my people and all of a sudden he's the hero. Something changed because all of a sudden neighbor love had no ethnic or geographical limits. Jesus like dropped the boundaries right there. No more boundaries. Neighbor love was evidence of God's love. It's difficult to find a loophole or a workaround to this. See, we want to know, well, is this sin? Is that sin? How close can I get? But when we get to this passage right here, it's hard to find a way to get around this. Because loving one's neighbor was the ultimate expression 
of one's love and devotion to God. And so with that being said, now the temple and everything associated with the temple became less important, pretty much unnecessary. It was new. So who's your neighbor this morning? It's my question to you. Who is this neighbor maybe that you're tempted to pass by all the time? Maybe you just pass by because you're busy. You're just busy, you just don't have time. Maybe it's because it's, they're not your responsibility. Maybe it's because it's, they're not your responsibility. Maybe it's, I just don't want to get involved. I just don't have time to get involved. Is it a coworker? Is it a neighbor, someone in your neighborhood? Is it maybe a family member? Whoever that someone is, you have to remember this, that according to Jesus, neighbor love demonstrates our God love. See, up to this point, to the Jews, everything was about rules and regulations and and what are the implications to what I'm doing. And they want to know, what can I do and get away with? He's wanting to know, well, then explain to me, who is my neighbor exactly? And Jesus drops it to everyone. Man, this changes the church. This changes the church. You know, if we really figured this out, the church would be irresistible. If we really could figure out how to love our neighbors the way he's saying it, that's why the church is resistible right now. It's because we've lost that. This is the new that Jesus brought that it should be old to us, but it's not old to us because we don't live it. And since we don't live it, it's like this is new revelation. We're supposed to love these people in the middle of their sin. These people are protesting the church and these people are doing this and do, these people who support abortion. We're supposed to love them? Absolutely. But they support killing babies. I, that doesn't mean you have to. But you have to love them. Because the Samaritan was not like the rest. I want everyone to stand with me this morning for just a moment. And as you do, I want, I want to do something. I want you to turn and just look around the room. Just kind of scan the room for a minute. Now, what you looked at, what you're looking at this morning is probably not what you think. See, a lot of times we go to church and it's like, uh, it's like we're in this cocoon. We're protected. We're, we come into church. We put on our church face and our whatever and our smile. We get in here and we pretend everything's okay. We look around at everybody else and we go, man, everybody's so good and so happy. We look at husband and wives. They're actually touching, holding hands. They got their arm around them. And in our minds, we're going, man, if they only knew I'm not good, I'm not okay, I'm not right, but we look at everybody else and we think they are, everything's fine. Just because we go to the same house of worship, we must all be pretty much the same. We're not. We're not. Not everybody in here is just like you. Not everybody's going through what you're going through, and you're not going through what everybody else is going through. Some of you, as we look around just now, we smile, we we, you know, it's, it gets uncomfortable, whatever. And we, it's easy for us to do that because we're good at hiding immediately some of the things that we're going through because we don't want anybody in. But in this house right now, as you looked around, there are some people who are broken, very broken. Some people that you looked directly in the eyes just now, they are broken. Some of them are living in broken homes right now. Their house is a mess. They're living in broken marriages. Some people that you looked at right now, you don't know this, but they're just trying to save their marriage. 
There are some people that you may have looked at in the eyes right now that they're trying to figure out how to get out of this marriage. Trying to figure out how to get out of this marriage. There are some people you looked at that are lost. There are some that are so confused. There are some that are depressed so deeply. And you think they can't be because, man, they smile at me every Sunday. There are people in this room right now that have really struggled with suicidal thoughts, suicidal tendencies, just thinking over and over, if I could just end it all, if I wouldn't hurt my kids or whatever, if I could just somehow just wipe my, my name off of this planet, that's the only way to take away the hurt and the pain that I'm dealing with. Some people in this room right now may be struggling with homosexual tendencies homosexual thoughts and they think there's no possible way I can come out because if I come out I could never fit into this church anymore because you can't be a homosexual and go to a Christian church my family will turn on me everyone's going to turn on me there's people that you've probably looked at right now that struggle with such anger and rage and hate that it's a fight every day that everything just makes them so mad. And they don't even know why. And they have conversations every day. I don't know why I'm so mad. I don't know why I'm so angry. There's people that you looked at right now that are struggling with some sort of addiction. That it's just eating them up. But I want you to know something. And the list actually goes on and on and on and on. There's so many thousands and thousands of things that we can say but I want you to know something this morning that here at, at the exchange in this house you are loved unconditionally there are no conditions I don't care if you were nine things on this list don't think for a second that you're not welcome in this place don't think for a second that you're not welcome to come and worship in this house. Don't think for a second that I'm judging you or that I'm against you. I have so much love for you. And as I read this over and over and over, I don't want to get lost so vertically that I miss it all horizontally. I don't want to be a pastor who when you come into this place, you feel like you can't last here very long because you're not like us or you don't look like us or you don't come from the same background as we do. I just want to do life with you. I want to do life with you. When you hurt, I want to hurt beside you. When you fall, I want to be there to pick you up. When I fall, I pray to God you're there to pick me up. But I don't want to be the guy that goes, if you're any of the things on this list right now, you come to the front and you fix it or you need to find another church down the street. You're welcome in this house. And if you have a problem with welcoming those people in this house, maybe this is not your house. I want to learn to love my neighbor so unconditionally like Jesus told me to do. He dropped the boundaries and slowly through religion and through good intentions and all that, man, I've put up walls and expectations. I can love you, but you know you've got to change before. No, you don't. Not in this house. You don't. God said, go and do likewise. Be the Samaritan. Go and show mercy and love and compassion. Because when you love your neighbor with, with everything that's within you, you are demonstrating your love for God. God Jesus came and he gave, the, he gave us these two commands. He says, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And, and he says, second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then later on, he's with his disciples. This is right before he goes away. And he tells his disciples, this one more, one, one command I give to you. He's telling them one, one more law. This is what I'm telling you. You love one another the way I love you. And when you do that, you show the world that you're mine because of your love one for another. Man, we gotta find that again. 
we got to find that again. Right? You know, we were singing the song earlier, Commission My Soul, and, and we're getting to that bridge, and it's open the heavens wide and open the heavens wide and brought your spirit on us. And Jay started singing it prophetically, probably not knowing he was singing it prophetically, but it's open the church wide. Open the church wide and pour out your spirit through us. I don't need really more of your spirit. I got all the spirit I can have. You can't load me up anymore. I am the manifestation of the Spirit of God. I'm a carrier. But what you can do is you can open up the walls of these church and pour more spirit through me. Just let it go through me. Let me be a conduit of your spirit of who you are. That's what I want. That's what I want. That's what I believe. Do you receive that this morning? The exchange, the exchange church is a horizontal body of believers. And it's time that we act like it. Okay? It's time we act like it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray over you for just a moment. Father, I pray right now over this time together. God, this is, this was a this is a tough word to, to process and it's a tough word to swallow sometimes, God, because our whole lives have kind of been wrapped up in just you, 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 and, and more and more of you and you and you and you. And, and Jesus, you came and you, you kind of shook 